Thank you so very much. Numbers 13, thank you so very much for uh, the hospitality uh, to us. Thank you for being a part of not just showing up, but doing your part. So many have had a part in uh, getting things ready for the service and, and then all that goes into it prior to the service taking place, the, the singing, the practice that went into that and learning and being ready and, uh, and just making the Lord a big deal this week in your life and very thankful for that, thankful for Pastor and the invitation to come, never take for granted being able to step into another church, another ministry, another pulpit and uh, very much am grateful and humbled uh, just at what God is doing and being a part of just a very little bit. And I feel like we, we, we put a little bit of our heart here with you. And it's a, it's a great investment to be able to partner with your pastor and family for the cause of Christ. And, and uh, we're going away benefiting so much more, I think, than what we've been able to invest uh, and leave with you. But I trust that you'll recognize this very, this very concept. And, and I know you know this, but we must be uh, reminded of it. And that is Sunday's coming. And what God has done this week was never designed by God to end tonight. And God's got a whole lot more still in store. And um, this is just a small part of it, but I think so often we look at the next event, what's the next event, and before Sunday comes, if God gives you breath and God allows you to be here, tomorrow's coming. And God wants to meet with you tomorrow. God wants you to know Him and experience Him tomorrow. And so we don't want to miss out on the fact that everything that Pastor's been preaching leading up to this. The, the message again, Sunday morning and Sunday school, God still desires to do all of that. We're in the heavens, manifest his presence. He wants you to know him. There comes a time you do have to take a break and you've got to adjust your schedule. You, but you don't take a break on experiencing God. Amen. That's the great danger. After every victory, you have to remember we are very vulnerable. Victory makes us vulnerable. And the reason why is because we oftentimes let our guard down. We're not as urgent. You've got to be urgent tomorrow. Take a breath. Do whatever needs to be done. But don't lose sight of the fact that the devil's not taking a vacation from lying and from deceiving and from destroying. And God doesn't sleep nor slumber. He doesn't take a vacation from equipping you, enabling you, partnering with us as we cooperate with him. We, we, we can't lose sight of those things. See, revival, again, is not something, it's someone. And revival is just getting back to normal Christianity. And normal Christianity is not letting someone else do your devotions and somebody else do your walk with God. Revival is all about us being reminded and confronted with this matter of the church. It's one of the biggest things we can be a part of. I don't know what else could be bigger than being a part of the church and being involved in what the church is doing. You wanna be under the umbrella of God's protection, you better stay in and a part of the very fabric of the church. 
And so don't, don't let up. And, and I'm so very thankful to, to be able to see uh, God do so many things. And the greatest days is still ahead. And it's not optimism. That is, that is hope in the promises of God. And God still has more in store. And I want to preach on that tonight. In Numbers chapter 13, let's stand, stand together, please. Very much enjoyed the music. Well, the, just the singing has been a great blessing. It's been worth coming uh, just to be able to hear the singing and be challenged. And I'm grateful for that. Thank you, young people. Thank you, older people. And thank you, all the in-between people um, for just the, the, the great singing. What a, what a great blessing. It's, it's a help. And uh, I'm, I'm so, so very thankful for uh, just what God has done. It's, it's hard to forget. It's going to be hard to forget this week um, because of God showing up and meeting with us. Is anything too hard for God? I appreciate that song Christy sang. And that's on our CD. Has, we have a few of those if, if uh, you're interested. Numbers 13, verse 30. And Caleb stilled the people before Moses and said, Let us go up at once and possess it, for we are well able to overcome it. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. You remember God had delivered his people from enduring the bondage of Egypt. They cried for a deliverer. God delivered. God delivered his people from the bondage of Egypt so that they could enjoy the blessings of Canaan. But before they could ever enjoy the blessings of Canaan, they had to enter the borders of Canaan. Before they ever enter into the land of Canaan, they had to embrace the fact, the promise that it was God's will and plan for them to go into Canaan. All they had to do here in Numbers 13 at a place known as Kadesh Barnea, all they had to do was trust and obey. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. That's all the words I've got right now. I'm working on a song about, about that subject. And that's all they had to do. Kadesh means consecrated. This should have been the Friday night service in Numbers 13 where God's people consecrated themselves to the will of God and went all the way with God, trusting and obeying. Except for those who know the story, and if you don't, I hope we will by the time we're done, we see that Kadesh has become synonymous in Numbers 13 with defeat and lost opportunity. All they had to do was trust and obey. Instead, they forfeited the very reason God brought them out of Egypt. They forfeited what God had in store. And God had so much more in store. I want to preach tonight on that thought. God still, God still has more in store. God still has more in store. Or the tragedy of unbelief. Thank you. Please be seated. We mentioned unbelief the other night. Unbelief just fails to take God at his word. 
A.W. Tozer said, every man will have to decide for himself whether or not he can afford the terrible luxury of unbelief. And all of unbelief, Horatius Bonar said, and all unbelief, unbelief has two opinions always. If you have unbelief, I have unbelief. We hold two opinions at that moment. Number one, we have a pretty good opinion about ourselves, while number two, we have a bad opinion about God. Do you know that the opposite of joy is not sorrow? The opposite of joy is unbelief. Unbelief is a big deal. In fact, I believe unbelief might be the mother of all sin. You take the first sin in the Garden of Eden, God said, don't, they did. Why? Because of unbelief. Unbelief is a big deal. When it comes to the matter of salvation, you can come to church. It doesn't mean you came to Jesus. It's imperative that you understand what Jesus said to the most most religious man of his day in John chapter three, you must be born again. Physically, you were birthed into this world. That's why you're here. There are two kinds of life in the Bible. There's earthly life, how you get here. There's eternal life. And that's how you go from here to him up there in heaven. And Jesus said to Nicodemus, you were born once, you wouldn't be talking to me. But if you're going to see heaven or enter heaven, you must be born again. And it requires faith in him, dependence upon him, belief in Jesus Christ. And without putting your faith and trust in Jesus, it's unbelief. You can know who God is. You can agree with who Jesus is. You can believe the gospel and still not put your faith and trust in Jesus to save you and be in unbelief. And unbelief, you take your last breath without Jesus. It'll damn your soul for an eternity in hell. But for the child of God, you can be saved because you put your faith and trust in the Savior to save you. And just like the people of God coming out of Egypt, Egypt is a picture of salvation. Egypt, rather, is a picture of the world and sin. Coming out of Egypt is a picture of salvation. And when God saved his people from Egypt, he didn't save them so that they can just roam the earth doing the best they can, holding on until they take their last breath. No, he brought them out of one land because he had a better land in store for them. Now, remember in the Bible, in the Old Testament, land was very important to the people of God. It's still important in the Middle East, but in the Old Testament, especially within the covenant of of God with his people, land was quite significant because God promised his people that if they would live in surrender and submission to him, God says, my blessing upon you will have a lot to do with the land. In other words, if God's people were living in surrender and submission to him, then they would experience a bumper crop year after year. They wouldn't face famine. And if they did face famine, they knew something's wrong at home. He said, if you live in surrender and submission to him, he said, you won't lose in battle. Also, if you live in surrender and submission to him, he had promised that the, that the wives would bear fruit in, in regards to children. So a lot of the blessing had to do with land, had to do with their, their physicality. We move into the church age when Jesus came in John chapter 10. He says, I have come that you might have life and that you might have it more abundantly. 
You see, what the land signified as the blessing of God in the Old Testament, life is what Jesus is about 2,000 years ago when he came, died on the cross, was buried and resurrected. That you might have deliverance from sin and hell, salvation, eternal life. But Jesus didn't stop with just eternal life. God didn't just stop with coming out of Egypt. He delivered his people from Egypt because he had so much more in store by way of the land of Canaan. And when you and I got saved, Jesus never pats a person on the back and say, I'll see you when you get to heaven. No, he literally moves inside. Why? Because he didn't stop with the salvation work and his plan and purpose of our, for our life just to be delivered from hell, just to go to heaven. He saved us so that we can know the abundant life. What is the abundant life? It is the spirit-filled life. What's the spirit-filled life? It's the victory in Jesus kind of life. Well, what is that? That means you live regularly, regularly in victory. Victory over sin. Shocked by defeat. But too many of God's people live like the people of Israel did coming out of Egypt, wandering in a wilderness. We live regularly in defeat and we're shocked every now and then when we have victory. See, revival is not a pie in the sky or a carrot dangling before us so that we can just have a, a happy emotional moment. Revival is just us getting back to God's program and God's process of trusting and obeying so that we can experience normal and regular Bible Christianity. What is that? It is living regularly in victory and shocked by defeat. God has more in store. But unbelief. We saw it the other night. We mentioned Matthew chapter 17, verse 15. The father who comes to Jesus and says, Lord, have mercy. My son, for he's a lunatic. He's, he's demon possessed. And we saw that the disciples who were commissioned by God, given authority by Jesus to be able to cast out demons, they failed. And they asked Jesus, why did we fail? And Jesus said, it's because of your unbelief. You know what that reminds me of? It reminds me that it is possible to have a ministry without the miracles of God. I don't want a ministry without the miracles of God. That's why I believe a lot of our ministries today, they, they look so much like the world. They smell like the world. They feel like the world because it is missing the DNA of God. Why couldn't we cast them out? And Jesus said, because of your unbelief. We mentioned Mark chapter six, Jesus went into his home territory and it says there he could do no mighty work. I believe wherever God goes, he's wanting to do a mighty work. And here it says he went into his hometown. People who are the most familiar with him. Do you know that that too tells me the danger of what James says in chapter number one, the dangers of becoming so familiar so familiar with God, so familiar with the Bible that we settle with becoming hearers and not doers. And the Bible says in Mark 6, verse 5 and 6, Jesus could there do no mighty work. And he marveled at their unbelief. Romans chapter 4, verse number 18, the Bible uses, Paul uses an Old Testament illustration by the name of Abraham. It says of Abraham against hope, he had hope 
that he would become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, what was spoken, so shall thy seed be. And being not weak in faith, he considered not his own body, now dead when he was about a hundred years old, neither yet the deadness of his wife Sarah's womb, who had been about 90. But the Bible says, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. And it says there that he was fully persuaded that what God had promised, God was able to perform. Now, go back to that verse 18. It says, against hope, he believed in hope. Now, the Bible word for hope is different than how we use it. We use hope like wishful thinking. I hope I get this for my birthday. I hope I get a pay raise. And a lot of times it's wishful thinking. I I hope it happens, but it probably won't. I hope the Orioles will win a World Series. It's just wishful thinking. You know, I hope the mother-in-law doesn't stay too long. It's just wishful thinking, you know, it's just, but, but we, you know, we mean, it's just wishful thinking. I hope the preacher doesn't preach too long. It's just wishful thinking. But when the Bible uses the word hope, D. Edmund Hebert said, it is a confident expectation. Not because Abraham was in great shape. No, he's 100 years old. His wife is 90. Humanly, it's impossible. Humanly, it's impossible. There's no medical journal in all of Israel that they could have looked at and said, well, there is a case of this somewhere, this happening. I think there's a chance. There's a, there's a good probability. No, there was absolutely no human possibility for Abraham at 100, his wife at 90, to be able to have a son. But the Bible says of Abraham, against hope, he believed in hope that he'd become the father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall thy be. But here's the verse. He staggered not at the promise of God through unbelief, but he was strong in faith, giving glory to God. Now listen, did Abraham ever stagger at the promise of God through unbelief? Sure. Remember the name Hagar? But here's what I love. When Abraham got right with God, God forgave him. And when you and I get right with God about unbelief, God too can forgive us. Hebrews chapter three, verse one, he's writing to God's people. Wherefore, holy brethren, partakers of the heavenly calling. He says in verse number seven, when the Holy Spirit of God speaks to us, today you hear his voice. When God speaks to you tomorrow, and by the way, you ought to be listening for God tomorrow. Harden not your hearts as in the provocation in the day of temptation in the wilderness when your fathers tempted me and proved me and saw my work 40 years. Wherefore was I grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their heart and they've not known my ways. So I swear in my wrath, they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief. In fact, the last verse of Hebrews chapter three says, so we see why going back to numbers 13. So we see why they could not enter in. It was because of their unbelief. You know, the Bible says of God's people who at Kadesh Barnea did not trust and obey, who tolerated unbelief. They wandered 40 years in the wilderness. The Bible says they were carcasses in a wilderness. I wonder how many churches could change their name 
to carcasses in the wilderness, Baptist church. Why? Because of unbelief. I just don't think God can do that. I don't, I don't think that's possible. I don't think we, I, I, I think, you know, times have changed. Sure they have, but we're not getting any better. Unbelief, it is a big deal. Listen, God has more in store. This revival meeting, it's been good. Uh, it's been good for me. God has more in store. God's doing a great work. God has more in store. And God's going to do some things Sunday. You never go off of, well, how does it feel? And we, we may not do the same music on Sunday. You may not have the same amount. You may not have the same crowd. You may have more. It may be bigger. The point is, we don't go off of how we feel. We go off of what God says. And God says, he has come that we might have life and have it more abundantly. More peace, more joy, more power, more answers to prayer, more help of the Holy Spirit. That's the abundant life. More intimacy with God. We pray so often, Lord, go deeper, go deeper, go deeper and widen the circle, bring more people into it. God, go deeper in my heart. Pray on Sunday. God, would you go deeper? Revival meeting's been good. Leading up to the revival meeting's been good. Go deeper. Go deeper. My, if God is still God, he's still a God to be known. Paul said at the end of his life, Philippians 3.10, I've got a prayer request. Paul's prayer request was, I want to know Jesus. He wasn't talking about getting saved. The word know is gnosko. It means to experientially know. Paul says, I want to experientially know him. Would you pray, God, help me go deeper? Now, why is it that God's people forfeited the so much more that, they, that God had in store for them? It was because of unbelief. What does unbelief look like? We see it here, three things that happen with God's people in Numbers chapter 13 and 14. Number one, and this will help us so that if it exists in our life and we see it, we see these things, we want to deal with them. We don't want to tolerate these, number one. In Numbers chapter 13, and, uh, chapter, uh, 13, verse one, and the Lord spake unto Moses saying, send thou men that they may search the land of Canaan, what would be to us a life, a life of Canaan, a life of victory, which I give unto the children of Israel of every tribe of their fathers. Now notice he says, which I give unto the children of Israel, which I give. In Numbers chapter 13, we find that they put together a search committee, a committee of 12 spies. They went to investigate the land. The problem was God had already made up his mind. His plan was settled. I've already given you the land. But instead of going into the land and taking it as God said, now they're going to investigate it. Well, well, God, we're spiritual people. So God, we're going to pray about this. Isn't it tragic? Something that God has, has invented and created and made for us to have an experiential relationship with him. And God said, prayer we just heard prayer is just as big as God is. Prayer can do anything that God can do. Yet people who have pride within their life and tolerate a measure of unbelief will use that which God has given as a privilege. We use it as a smokescreen for, I don't think so. Let me just pray about it. I've said it before. One of the things I love about the Bible is it keeps me from praying about a lot of things. When God says it, you don't have to pray about it. 
What is it that they did that, that, that gives away unbelief was existing in their life? What is it in your life and mine that's a giveaway that we're forfeiting the so much more God has in store? What is it that is an indicator that the reviving God's been doing in your life is going to end unless we deal with any unbelief? Number one, they doubted God's word. They did not take God at his word. God said, I've already given you the land. Okay, God, but we're gonna put together this committee and we're gonna go take out, uh, take a, an opportunity to go spy out the land, but I've already given you the land. Hey, I know, but, but while we're praying about this, Lord, I, I think it would be good for us just to be able to see, just so we can have it all together. I mean, because what, what human strategy ever makes sense that we do such a big, I mean, we're going to move, Pastor talked about, they're moving here, bringing the caravan of 50 vehicles coming down the interstate here. And that's a pretty big caravan, but you, could you imagine several million? And so they're saying it only makes sense that we go search out the land. Now, what God does is he lets them do it. But he says, I've already given you the land. And what happens is we take God at his word, but we'll sit and look at it. Hey, what, is, what does God say about the land of Canaan, people of God? Well, God says, go. So what are we doing? Well, we're memorizing it. We're meditating on it. I mean, we, we can look all around the word of God at it and, yeah, you know, yeah, God, God, you know, he's, yeah, that's what he says. Uh, but we're, we're going to go look at it. We're going to investigate. And, and what happens is we begin to doubt what God has already declared. Listen, the danger, you've heard this, doubting in the dark what God has made clear in the light. God was crystal clear about his plan. That's why you've heard the messages on revival leading up to the revival. You've heard what God wants to do. You've heard what God thinks about his church. You've heard about the Great Commission. You've heard about missions. You hear these things. And God is saying, now what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to help you so that you can go all the way with God. But the moment we stagger at the promises of God, God doesn't say, well, let, 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 me, let, me, let me change the plan. God didn't say, well, let me, let, let, let me take out the clause there. Let, let, let me, let me, let's, let's, let's renegotiate. There's a danger to not taking God at his word. Let me ask you, what's your attitude towards the Bible? I love the fact that you're easy to preach to. I love the fact you've got your Bibles in your lap. I'm always shocked going to churches and see people who claim to be saved, who are regular attenders, who claim to be Bible believers, and they come into church and they don't, they don't even carry a Bible. What's your attitude towards the Bible? Psalm chapter 1, but his delight, the blessed man, the one who has the so much more, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and That's a good reason to keep Sunday night and Wednesday night services. Yeah. 
More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, than the honeycomb. What's your attitude towards the Bible? John 5, 39, search the scriptures. For in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. Acts 17, verse 11, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, and that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and they searched the scriptures daily whether those things were so. What's your attitude towards them? What's your attitude when, when it's preached? And your pastor's right. There's places and there's, 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 there's uh, uh, circles where, where they will spend an hour to an hour and a half of singing and shouting and testifying, and then they want the preacher to, to shorten that which God has declared to change your life. I remember walking into a service one time and somebody said, oh, preacher, God may get in the service tonight. I said, well, I hope he does. They said, he just might and you won't have to preach. I said, no, he gets in the service. It's so that the preaching will be helped. It's not so that we won't have preaching. Preaching isn't the bad thing. Preaching is that which will change people's lives. What's your attitude towards the Bible? When's the last time you responded to an invitation? When was the last time you went all the way with God and didn't just stop at the altar, but you realized there's some stuff deep down inside. I need to get to pastor. I need to get to somebody. You keep stopping here and keep stopping here and you keep stopping here. But there may be some, you understand Proverbs 28, 13, he that covereth his sin shall not prosper, but whoso confesseth and forsaketh it shall have mercy. And maybe you've been doing the same thing over and over and over and you're not getting victory. It's hanging on to you and you've been coming to the altar pray, but you need to go a little bit further. You need to go a little bit deeper. You need to go all the way with God and stop doubting his word. What's your attitude towards the Bible? That's why we work with our kids trying to take notes. That's why we're trying to make them pay attention. I said it before. When I was five, I remember sitting beside my grandmother in church trying to write whatever she had on her notepad. Because after the service, my mom would always ask, what, what did the preacher preach about? Now, my pastor told jokes and illustrations. And it would suffice my mom. As long as I was paying attention... But if I couldn't recall anything that my mom had said or my, my, the preacher had said telling my mom, if I couldn't recall, I got a spanking when I got home. I know some of you don't know what that is. Someone says, is that like timeout? No, it was like knockout. <laughs> yeah. My mom never played for a church softball team, but she knew how to swing. Yeah, yeah. See, my mom's philosophy was if you could stay awake through an hour of Winnie the Pooh, you can stay awake through an hour of the preaching of God's Word. And I was convinced as a child that when the Word of God and the man of God came together, God had a plan just for me. I'm telling you, it's a big deal. It's a big deal as to how we treat the Bible. What's your attitude? And the second thing we find, not only did they doubt God's word, but here's something I think very critical that helps me see if I'm trusting God or if I'm tolerating unbelief. Notice in verse number, notice in verse number 31. But the men that went up with him said, We be not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. 
And the Bible goes on to say, And they brought up an evil report of the land which they had searched unto the children of Israel, saying, The land through which we have gone to search it is a land that eateth up the inhabitants thereof, and all the people that we saw in it are men of great stature. And there we saw the giants, the sons of Anak, which come of the giants. And we were in our own sight as grasshoppers, and so we were in their sight. Do you see what they're doing? Remember those spies, how many were there? There were 12. Ten were bad, two were good. What did they see when they spied on Canaan? Ten were bad, two were good. And here we have ten of them. By the way, all 12 of them saw the same thing, and they had the same report. The difference was the conclusion. Ten of them said, we can't, and two of them said, God can. Uh, Well, there are giants. Ten of them said, We're like grasshoppers. Two of them said, they look like grasshoppers to me compared to God. I'm telling you, perspective makes a difference. Why did Caleb and Joshua have such a a different perspective? Because they didn't doubt God's word. They had confidence in the word of God. We were talking with Joshua Noah and Pastor today, our interns, and and, and I think the big battle today as far as which kind of a ministry and which direction and what flavor, I think it all goes back to can you believe God? Can you trust his word? Can you believe that Jesus can still build his church in 2023 with a society that is so confused just about the very basics of life? Can you believe God? That's what it comes down to. And what happens is when you don't believe God, you're going to leave God out of the equation. How many people have you heard who have been wounded and offended, hurt by somebody at church? There's a lot of preachers who are no longer in the ministry because they got hurt by an older preacher. There are a lot of people not sitting here tonight that maybe should be. They're not here because they got hurt by somebody here. Does that happen? Sure it does. It's called life. Do you know that the disciples who spent time with Jesus in the school of Jesus, they got offended at each other. They got offended at Jesus. The problem, however, is when we fail to access the grace of God that's far greater than any wound that you and I will ever have. Listen. If I say something unkind to you, it may hurt. You say something unkind to me, it might hurt. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but that's not true. Words do hurt. But God's grace is sufficient. It's sufficient to help with the sting. It's sufficient to help with the hurt. Listen, if you get punched in the nose tonight, it might hurt. But if a year from tonight, you're still hurting, you have a major physical problem that needs to be checked out. If somebody hurt your feelings last month and you're still not over it, you've got a major spiritual issue 
princes will come. But great peace have they which love thy law. And nothing shall offend you or cause you to stumble. Why is it that people, good people, godly people, they leave their posts and they go AWOL? It's because they left God out of the equation. But God, but God, you don't know what happened to me. You don't know what it was like, but God, your situation is but a grasshopper in the sight of God. Don't leave God out of the equation of your broken marriage. Don't leave God out of the equation of your messed up finances. Don't leave God out of the equation of your debilitating health. Don't leave God out of the equation of your ministry. Don't leave God out of the equation of your discipleship walking with him. This is all about God. Don't leave God out of the equation. You said, my life's so messed up. Well, whose is it? That's the truth. But don't leave God out of the equation. There are many who are struggling perhaps with the same sin. Same sin over and over and over. And the sin that put Jesus on the cross, that put him in the grave, that he came out of the grave victorious, conquering, he wants to conquer in your life. Don't leave him out of the equation. In 1934, Kurt Christensen, a Danish carpenter, he became a toy maker. He created a company that's called Lego. Lego. How many have a Lego? What are Legos good for? Toughening up the bottoms of your feet. That's what they're good for. It's a word coined from two Danish words. It means play well. You know what their motto is? Their motto, Lego's motto is only the best is the best. That's a good motto. But one of the masterminds behind the Lego company a number of years ago gave six participants six Lego bricks. Each one had a Lego brick. And they took that, that situation and the uh, the one of the, uh, the masterminds behind the company said, ask those six individuals to give an estimate as to how many unique combinations there are and that, that could be created with just six bricks. Well, they all guessed and no one came anywhere close. And he gave them the staggering, the staggering possible permutations the total was 915,103,765 possible unique combinations with just six Lego bricks. I want to tell you that's nothing compared to what God can do in your situation with your life. You know, you never have a miracle anywhere in the Bible, but what you have an impossible situation. So let me ask you, what's too hard in your life for God to handle? In much the same way, we grossly underestimate the God who's able to do immeasurably more than we could ever ask or imagine. Don't leave God out of the equation. Not only did God's people, they disregard what God said. Not only did they leave God out of the equation, but the third thing, notice in chapter 14 and verse 1. 
And all the congregation lifted up their voice and cried, and the people wept that night. And all the children of Israel murmured against Moses and against Aaron. And the whole congregation said unto them, Would God that we had died in the land of Egypt, or would God that we had died in this wilderness? And wherefore hath the Lord brought us into this land to fall by the sword, that our wives and our children should be a prey? Were it not better for us to return into Egypt? And they said one to another, Let us make a captain, let us return into Egypt. Verse 5, then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before all the assembly of the congregation of the children of Israel. Look at those two men, Moses and Aaron. Notice verse 6, here's another set of men. And Joshua the son of Nun and Caleb the son of Jephunneh, which were of them that searched the land, rent their clothes, and they spake unto all the company of the children of Israel, saying, The land which we passed through to search it is an exceeding good land. And so you hear you have two of the men, they're interceding with God. Two of the men are pleading with the people. And what do the people end up doing? In spite of the fact God said very clearly, the land is yours, go take the land. They tolerated unbelief, which paralyzes them. And it keeps God from working the miracles within their midst. They, they disregarded what God said. They left God out of the equation of their problems and situation. And so that number three, they vetoed God's will. They vetoed God's will. The whole congregation, we're told, criticized Moses and Aaron. And this comes on the heel of Caleb's message. And Caleb said in Numbers 13, verse 30, let us go up at once. We don't have to pray about it. Let's go up at once. Let's go. Let's go. But the next day they criticized Moses and Aaron. They complained about the fact that they ever were out there in the first place, that they ever left Egypt. Listen, when your eyes are on yourself and your circumstances, you lose the perspective of God and you say ridiculous things. The Jews had a long record of complaining against the Lord and their leaders and being judged for it. A long record. See, when the child of God is in the will of God, there's no place of complaining. There's no place for, even if the circumstances, there's no place for complaining even when it's difficult circumstances. A complaining spirit is an evidence of an ungrateful and unsurrendered heart. When we grumble, we're saying that we know more about the situation than God does. Philippians 2 verse 14, do all things without murmuring and disputing. Do all things, all things without murmuring and disputing. Listen, if you don't want God's frown and God's displeasure, you should desire to have God's favor and smile on your life and this, uh, this congregation, your church family. You're not going to tolerate complaining. Listen, you need to take responsibility. You hear somebody complaining, you need to help them out. You show me anywhere in the Bible where people complain and God said, well, good for you. Well, that's a, that sure is. I, 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 I wish I knew as much as you knew. God never deals tritely with complaining because com complaining is undermining the will of God. You know what the will of God is? It's an expression of God's love for his people. And when God's people complained about God's expression of love for them, he dealt with them severely. 
You want God's hand to be retrieved. You want God's blessing to be removed. You want God's smile to turn into a frown. Then you tolerate griping and complaining. God's will is not a punishment. It's nourishment. It's not painful chains that shackle us. It's God's loving ties to us that keeps us connected to his heart. See, those who rebel against God's will are denying God's wisdom. They're questioning God's love and they're tempting the Lord and they're testing the Lord to discipline them. Why do we ever expect that we're to have an easy life? Where do we get that from? You've been watching too much Joel Osteen. And Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, I'll give you rest. He says, take my yoke upon you, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find another rest unto your soul. And he goes on to say, my yoke is easy. You notice what he called it? A yoke. You've got to harness up with me. My yoke is easy. It's hard. It's hard pastoring today. It's hard. I, I, I said I had Sam Davison in shortly after I started pastoring, and he asked, well, how's it going? So I started telling him how hard it was. And we were walking by the side of the church, and I was telling him all these hard things. It was so much easier than evangelism. This is hard. And he stopped me. He said, sure it is. Sure it is. Or God would be calling little girls to pastor. <laughs> so I said, what? I, don't th- I didn't say anything. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. I didn't say anything. (laughs) Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. It's the way of the transgressor that's hard. Get in the yoke with Jesus. What's your attitude towards the word of God? What's your attitude towards the Bible? What's your attitude towards the specific truth that has been confronting you? Remember in Matthew 14, the disciples are in the boat and Jesus is walking on water. And Peter says, Lord, if it's you, bid me come. Jesus said one word, come. They could have sat there in the boat and said, what's what's the real Greek word for that word, come? We need to study this out. (laughs) They may have said, Matthew, I think Jesus is talking to you. Matthew said, no, this is my book I'm writing. I'm on chapter 14. <laughs> Thomas, Jesus is talking to you. Thomas said, I doubt it. I, 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 just, I don't think so. Peter said, I'll go. Peter put his confidence in the word of God, stepped out of the boat and began to walk on water, did what no man could possibly do. You said he sank. Well, that's a good point. Why did he sink? Because he disregarded what God said. He left God out of the equation when he saw the winds and waves. And he vetoed God's will. He cared more about Peter in his own life. And when he sank, he had more sense than what we have because there his actual physical life was at stake. And he cried out and said, Lord, save me. And Jesus said, you made your bed, you lie in it. The Bible says immediately Jesus reached forth his hand and saved him, delivered him. What's your attitude towards the Bible? Don't leave God out of the equation. Don't veto the will of God. Somebody else is taking a step of faith. 
You see a young person saying, I believe God wants to use me. Don't sit back there as a skeptic and say, well, that'll wear off. I doubt it'll last. Well, neither does your bath or shower. That's why we keep daily with... Listen, God develops His people daily. Not in a day. It's daily. And when a young person expresses, God wants to use me, or an older person, or a married person, and, and, and I, 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 don't, I, don't know, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to step out by faith. I'm, I'm just going to trust God. You need a church family that says... Why? Because that's where the smile and favor of God comes in. They're going to leave a high-paying job to do what? Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. For as much as you know, your labor is not in vain in the Lord. The best retirement you'll ever have is to trust and obey no matter what. About a century ago, there were a group of missionaries when they left, and your pastor knows all about this, but when they would leave to go to the land in which God called them, they had a far different mindset than what we have today. Instead of suitcases, they packed their belongings into coffins. They didn't ship suitcases, they shipped their coffins. They sailed out of port, they waved goodbye to everyone they loved, everything they knew, and they never returned home. They couldn't afford to. One particular missionary went to the New Hebrides, which is in the South Pacific. He went to reach headhunters, knowing full well that every missionary who attempted to reach the headhunters before him were martyred. But this he believed. God so loved the world, even the headhunters. As whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. But how shall they hear without a preacher? He packed his coffin. For 45 years, he lived among that tribe and he loved them. When he died, tribe members buried him in the middle of their village and they inscribed this epitaph on his tombstone. It said this, quote, when he came, there was no light. When he left, there was no darkness. Now, let me ask you a question. Let me ask you this, Calvary Baptist Church, and I ask Myself as the pastor of Canaan Baptist Church. When did we start believing that God wants to send us to safe places to do easy things? Jesus did not die to keep us safe. He died to make us dangerous. Faithfulness is not holding the fort. It's storming the gates of hell. The will of God is not an insurance plan. It's a daring plan. The complete surrender of your life to the cause of Christ, it isn't just radical, it's to be normal. Quit living as if the purpose of life is to arrive safely at death. Pack your coffin, trust and obey. 
The entire experience at Kadesh Barnea, it teaches us this. There's no substitute for faith in God's omnipotence. There's nothing too hard for God. What is it that's holding you back? Take a step of faith. In 1853, America hosted its first World's Fair in New York City. The organizers built a beautiful exhibition hall and they called it the Crystal Palace. This is where the latest and the greatest inventions were showcased. This is also where a man named Elisha Otis pulled off one of the most remarkable stunts in the history of the World's Fair. Otis, if you recognize the name, is the inventor of the safety elevator brake. He was having difficulty selling his idea to safety first skeptics. It was time to go big or go home, he thought. He stood on an elevator platform, hoisted high enough for everyone to see at the Crystal Palace, the exhibition hall. Then Otis, who had positioned an axe man above the elevator, he cued him the time when that axe man was to chop the rope. The elevator fell a few feet. The crowd let out a gasp. Elisha Otis pronounced all safe. Ladies and gentlemen, all safe. In your life and mine, cutting the rope doesn't seem safe. But can I tell you what's really not safe? Doubting God's word. Leaving God out of the equation. Vetoing the will of God. Playing it safe, in fact, is the greatest risk you can take. Taking no risk is unbelief, I believe. Cutting the rope is about taking calculated risk. When I say calculated, I'm not talking about a risk-reward ratio. And I'm not advocating blind leaps in the dark. Faith is not a blind leap in the dark. No, keep both eyes wide open. Look away from everything else. Look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of your faith. Peter walking on water. Keep your eyes on Jesus. But you'd better not focus on the wind and waves. The only way to walk on water is to keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Well, you have to get out of the boat too, but... Elisha Otis pulled off this unforgettable sales pitch. There were only a few buildings in New York City at that time taller than five stories. Why? No one wanted to climb a set of stairs. It was next to impossible to rent top floor real estate. In 1854, Otis installed an elevator in a building on Broadway, and the rest is history. In 1890, there were 10 buildings taller than 10 stories. By 1900, there were 65 buildings taller than 20 stories. By 1908, there were 538 buildings in New York City that qualified as skyscrapers, including the famous Flatiron Building between Broadway and Fifth Avenue. More and more buildings got taller and taller, and something else happened. People were wanting to get high-rise, top-floor rooms so that they could get a view. Everyone wanted a room with a view because they didn't have to climb stairs. Elisha Otis had turned the world upside down. He didn't just invent the safety elevator break. He made the modern skyscraper possible. At last count, New York City has 58,000 elevators. And those elevators are said to make 11 billion trips every year. And that's just in New York City. Just New York City. All because Elisha Otis 
had the courage to cut the rope. If you want to imagine the so much more that God has in store, cut the rope. It's scary, especially if you're afraid of heights. But anything less than taking God at his word, trusting and obeying is maintaining the status quo. You'll experience a few falls and a few fails, that's for certain. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Cutting the rope is the way we cut ties to wandering in a wilderness. You don't have 40 years to waste. You don't have four years. You don't have four days. We don't have any time to waste. Let us go up at once and possess it. Let's stand together, please. Lord, it's not hard to get excited about what you're doing here at Calvary Baptist Church. But none of us are exempt from ever falling prey to the tragedy of unbelief. Lord, would you help each of us to recognize if you're speaking to us about any place where we may be, may be disregarding the word of God any place where we're leaving you out of the equation of our life, any place where we might be vetoing your will and plan for our life. Lord, so much more that you have in store for Calvary Baptist Church, not just for the church as a body, but for the, each individual that makes up this wonderful body. Open their eyes. Help them to see that God can use them and God wants to use them. God is calling them. Help them to cut the rope and trust and obey. Lord, we thank you for being good to us, to meet with us. We love you, Jesus. Pastor. Nobody's in a hurry.